Well, hello again, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Trial by Fire. Um, I am joined today by my co-host, Jeremias, and our guest, uh, Toby Korn, um, is uh, is here with us today as well. I think this is the first time that Jeremias and I have had a, a guest on. Normally, it's just myself and Jeremias, so i um, really interested to... Uh, kind of play this one out and see how it goes. But uh, Toby, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, kind of your background and and what it is that you uh, you do? Yeah. So hi. First of all, thanks for having me on, guys. It's uh, absolutely great to be here. Um, so I'm Yeremias's uh, currently southerly neighbour. I live just two three hours down the road from him. But I was previously his northerly neighbour. I used to live two or three hours up the road from him, above the Arctic Circle. Um, as you can hear from my accent, however, I'm not Swedish. I was UK uh, born and raised and moved to Sweden uh, 15 years ago now, having come out here for the last uh, 30 years. And basically the easiest way I can put a lot of what I do is a professional outdoorsman. A lot of my activities are related to the outdoors, specializing in applied wilderness survival in extreme cold weather skills, uh, but ranging through seasonal guide, being up in the mountains throughout the, the years. But coming also from not only a military, but also a corporate background. So a few different hats in the mix. I think we're going to focus on the outdoors today. Um, but certainly a lot of the work I've done in the last couple of years, especially sort of pandemic related, is looking at people using uh, nature to minimize or manage stress or gain corporate benefit from time in nature. And that's from CEO level down uh, and, and a lot of my work's going in that direction right now so it's been a really interesting but challenging time where people have realized that there's there's tough decisions to be made and actually a little bit of a pause and time out in nature can can do wonders for the brain the thought processes and um, and clarity of thought so all things in and around that I think that's where we're going to be going today Wow, that's really interesting. I think I wasn't aware of that was kind of where you were at the moment. And I guess uh, just based on the the kind of notes that I've taken, um, I guess just uh, based on looking at your YouTube channel and your your kind of website and things, a lot of my, I suppose, questions and things have been around the kind of urban preparedness side of things. But actually, that's also like a really relevant kind of thing at the moment is, is like you're saying, people maybe with a pandemic, people working from home, or maybe some people are actually achieving a, a bit more of a work-life balance right now. Um, maybe having more time to actually get outside and appreciate time spent with the family, time spent in the woods. Um, is, is that something that maybe you've, you've experienced recently? or Very much so. And I think we, we can look at it from two sides of the scale. Uh, a lot of the work I aspire to do is in the positive preventative side of things. So it's about um, identifying and achieving that balance, work, life, family, access to nature. Uh, but what we find in a lot of the, um, you know, psychological and therapeutic models currently in existence, especially in the West, is it's sort of that like until you hit rock bottom, we won't help you back up. So until people are signed off on long term stress with, you know, depressive states or clinically diagnosed issues, only then they start to access certain therapies. And of course, that's that's a heck of a road back to where you were before. And so what we've had to do is work at that end of the scale to understand the process, but with a, a huge amount of enthusiasm to say, the early warning signs are so recognizable, we shouldn't be letting it get that far. So let's let's try to work right the way back and say, as people have what I call a wobble, you know, as they start to feel a little bit off, let's address it right there and then and get some positive intervention and actually 
that's where the nature-based stuff really comes in. And and I think personally, I think this is where bushcraft has really excelled because it's given a huge demographic, especially through Europe, that good excuse, <laughs> let's call it that, um, that justification to spend some time out in nature with the family or even without the family. Because sometimes, you know, a little bit of downtime is what you need. And and that ability to, to go on a simple half-day, one-day, two-day course for a lot of people, the early intervention is is enough of a reset they need to just give them that, you know, little bit of fresh air, little bit of achievement, little bit of positive activity and be like, okay, I'm, I'm feeling all right now. I can get back into the office or the workspace, whatever the case may be. And certainly in the pandemic, the, the nature was something people maybe only had access to that. You know, all of their normal coping mechanisms, going to the gym, going to the pub, going to the club wasn't there. So it was just time in nature. That's all they had. And, and they sort of realized, well, you know, I've lost a little bit here. I'm a bit disconnected and that doesn't feel so good. So a lot of the reconnectivity work is, is, is where, I'm, where I'm at right now. But, yeah, it's super, super, super interesting. I know that you and I have been discussing or you, me and Han have been discussing this a little bit with the um, uh, program that, it, that, that you're a part of from the university here in Lulo. Uh, is that still the, that, that, that one that you're uh, doing some work with? So there's there's the two on the go. There's one Numia, there's one in Lulio, and they're sort of similar, but j- just to sort of round that out, right. what you're seeing is that science community is understanding and recognizing um, there's, there's great benefit for nature engagement, and they want to measure mm-hmm. it, but they don't know what to do in it. <laughs> um, right. So what they're doing is, is engaging with us practitioners and saying, if you can bring us your programs and we can look at what you do, then we can try and figure, figure out if we can interject in that and, and add some scientific measurements. And that's that's proper field-based science. And, and for a lot of these academics, that's actually very challenging. And what you find is there's a large body of scientific evidence around adventure-based therapy, um, equally as as much, if not potentially more, around animal-based therapy, which Yeremis, you and Hannah and I have talked about a lot. And now they want to build that scientific evidence around nature-based therapy. Um, so that's really rewarding. And and that's, uh, globally, there's a surge in that right now. I'm, I'm reading a huge amount of um, as much scientific literature as I am inspirational literature. And so there's this big sort of, dare we say, reawakening to the positivity of spending time in nature and meaningful connection with nature. There's like, there's so much in that to unpick that. I mean, my brain is just buzzing with like which direction to go with right now. <laughs> and, um, but the, the, the one that's obvious to me, I suppose, is um, based on some of the conversations that I've had on this podcast in the past, namely, uh, which is a man I'm sure you're probably familiar with, uh, John Hudson, um, who trains the uh, in the British Special Forces. Um, but one of the things that, and especially in his book as well, but he has spoken about this, um, the tangible results that we achieve when we're out in nature. And I suppose not just, I suppose what you're talking about there, of course, is, you know, just the physical act of being outside, experiencing, getting more green in our, literally in our visual cortex is also has huge beneficial um positive benefits to our brain but also on a on a sort of a task-based um initiative uh, john hudson has said to me that um, when he has uh, people out and the physical act of building something that's tangible that can be achieved within an hour or two whether that's 
constructing a shelter, whether that's building a fire, whether that's gathering materials for the night, butchering an animal, whatever it might be, our brains are are genetically wired to like give us like happy endorphins from from those things. And I think the my my experience or or my understanding of it is that people that maybe work in offices and kind of spend all day answering emails, those parts of the brain aren't necessarily getting triggered because you don't actually feel like you're achieving anything when you're just, when your daily tasks are sending emails, there's no kind of physical tangible result at the end of the day. Whereas our brains genetically are, are predisposed to reward us for achieving things like catching an animal or building a shelter or building a fire. And and in his experience anyway, he has said that those things, uh, people feel like that genuine sense of like physical reward system in their brains for, uh, for those kind of things. And um, I would love to understand or know based on the scientific uh, kind of uh, measurements that you're talking about, is there anything within those parameters that, uh, that are being explored? Yeah. Uh, very much so. Um, I, I mean, science is sort of multi-directional in this right now. Um, I, I'll just take a, a very quick step back, if you'll indulge me. Um, absolutely. No, uh, absolutely. And, Go and, for and it. And quote a, 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 an oft-Buddhist phrase of, before enlightenment, chop wood, carry water. After enlightenment, chop wood, carry water. Um, right. <laughs> and make of that like what it. you will. I've got my own interpretation. Yeah. But that, yeah. that, true sense of reward in successful completion of these activities Uh, and this is what was interesting for me from the science is I'm sort of saying listen I know this works I just don't know what's happening but I don't need to know because I know it works so the groups that I take out they find such pleasure in the simplicity but the reward I think that's the thing. If you're chopping, you know, you know me, it's your back this up. If, you, if you're chopping wood for somebody else, it sucks, right? <laughs> but if you're doing it for yourself and then all the way through that process, and we have this uh, phrase in Sweden that, that wood heats you three times, right? When you chop it down, when you cut it, and when you burn it. Uh, and what they forget is actually wood heats you about seven times because you move it so damn much. Um, so there, there's, there's some going in there. But that, that you know, every time you put that log in the fire that you personally have harvested off the landscape, that sense of satisfaction from the entire process is absolutely amazing. And whilst I want to talk about the science, it's almost the science doesn't do it justice. Um, and, and I almost, I want to know the science because it's important, but let's not crush the mysticism either like there's just something very ethereal and elemental about it especially when you get into fire lighting processing of your food eating meals you know when you eat a meal that you've harvested yourself it's an entirely different thing really so science is doing great but i think there's a balance between the 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 art and the science shall we say i mean it it is also so beautiful that there are these things that is sort of allowed to be in mystery still even if it works and even if there are like science that can be backed up against it with how well nature works for you in in a therapeutic way and things like that but mm-hmm. the fact that it doesn't necessarily always need to be oh this is exactly what's Quantified. happening in your brain yeah exactly it is yeah. it, 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 it it is quite nice it definitely is nice but toby um you were talking about that in, in Western 
medicine that we often sort of wait for people to be at rock bottom before we actually start helping them. But the approach now that this study and things like that is taking is sort of seeing what effect nature actually does have um, on us to not necessarily let people get to rock bottom before they realize what good benefits nature has on them. Like, what is it that we have to do? Is it that we as practitioners, as you said, do we need to be more open about our um, mental well-being and all of these things that is sort of, I guess, the dark side of, 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 a, of a human's life and what positive what what positive aspect being outside actually brings us like is that something that needs to be talked more about on a broad scale and not only in these study groups and not only in these um i mean i see uh, veteran associations like war vets and things like that that i know that you're a part of as well toby that it's very open compared to the everyday civilian, if you will, talking about mental health. So is that sort of where we need to go, where we're talking more about mental health in general and applying that to how, yeah, holistic thing and applying that on how we're feeling good about being outside? That was a long question. Um, so I'd answer, I'd answer that in two parts. Um, so first of all, yes, we must be engaging in that conversation. Um, we, we must be... Uh, helping that conversation be had. We don't necessarily need to be leading by example. You can actually lead by listening. A lot of my work in the last few months has, has just been being receptive, switch to receive, not to send. So don't extol the virtues of nature. Listen to where people are at and what they're struggling with and, and be honest where nature can help and where they might need additional assistance or access to more urgent resources um, because we are in the restorative preventative side and if people have already crossed that threshold uh, and, and are going to what you call the dark place maybe they need that pharmaceutical intervention maybe they need that therapist intervention you know they, they might need something a little bit more um, urgent before they get into the time in nature kind of thing um, and that was actually one of the reasons I got into some of these research projects because people were sort of getting very sort of giddy and overjoyed oh if we just put people in nature everything could be okay and it's like well no no for certain people in a certain state, if you put them under a tree for two hours and you come back and find them, they'll be hanging from that tree. Like we've got to understand where they're at. If if they're that vulnerable, this is the worst thing you can do is take them in the forest and leave them alone. Please, you understand the dark humor behind that. And, and some of these nurse practitioners, especially, just hadn't thought about that. They hadn't thought there was any negative. So first of all, we, we've, we've got to understand and assess people where they're and that's a clinical role. But then you know, in the positive preventative way, us as practitioners should be extolling the virtues. And what we need to do, Yeremis, our responsibility right now is twofold. One is to meet people where they're at, because it's very difficult for us that lead outdoor lives to understand how disconnected from nature the average person is. And 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 this has been shocking to me in the last few months is to realize not only are people are disconnected, but a, a, a very large percentage of populations are scared of nature. They're, they're actually terrified. So we can't just be like, you need to come out for a week and sleep in a snow hole and kill a moose because it's just so far beyond where they're at. We need to meet them much closer to their comfort zone and within their time scale. So actually, when I, I did a work for um, 
a UK-based organization, just indulge me a second, guys, just on this story, that, that was dealing with a lot of um, advisory prosecution work. And so they're reviewing horrific case files to take to the criminal justice system to advise the, the prosecution strategy. And they used to go into the office um, to do that. And that was a part of their coping mechanism. They'd leave the home, go into the office, review this horrific evidentiary base, put it in the safe and go home and sort of compartmentalize it. And now those case files were at home with them because they were working in lockdown. And so the the, the head of their HR contacted me and said, what, Toby, we need some sort of ceremony almost to start and finish their working day that you can put pick this up and put it down. Um, and I, yep, okay, we can work with that and, and it can be nature, grounding in nature, but it needs to be done in like seven minutes or less. <laughs> and it was like, whoa, I get it. This, I'm a guy that's typically doing multi-day, fully immersive courses, being told you've got to give them an activity they can complete in 10 minutes or less, uh, sorry, seven minutes or less at the start and beginning of every working day. And part of me screamed, well, that's just impossible. And then I realized, well, that's the brief. If, if I can't give them anything, then they've got nothing. Uh, and this was a workforce for 160 people that were, that were manifesting some very severe symptoms by this stage. And, and we figured it out and we presented it. And I can't empirically measure it. I can't call it a success because it wasn't a scientific study, but certainly the feedback was very, very positive. And so we don't think in terms of giving people this very local access to nature for minutes embedded in their daily activities to begin with. But that's the start of the journey. If they do a few minutes a day, then that will get to elements of hours a day and then to that hour a day to be multiple hours a week. And then the fascinating journey begins because they'll go, oh, this is really nice. I feel good now and, and I want to do this more and I want to do this better. And then they end up spending the weekend away on a bushcraft course. And then they end up spending a long weekend here in Sweden or a week up in the mountains, things like that. They're not going to do that directly because they're not going to stand the value and they're not going to stand the process. So this is where the, the coordination and conversations like this are so important, amongst other things, that we all understand we've, we've, we've all got a great piece of the overall puzzle. We just need to start putting them together and saying, okay, guys, who's and girls, who's got what? And, and where do we begin and who does what where? But all of it should add to that, and I would say holistic process. Very good friend of mine uh, coined that term, that it isn't just about holistic measurements, but it's that total person viewpoint. And that is the essence and spirit of what we call well-being, which is one of those phrases that's been corporate hijacked already, unfortunately. But that totality of our wellness as an individual and or family unit, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. No, I, Toby, I mean, everything you're saying there is um, like, yeah, I love I love everything you're saying. And I think I've often felt uh, maybe, maybe maybe guilty is the wrong word, but somewhat um, slightly uh, detached from. Yeah, like you're saying, the the average sort of person who works in London or works in Dublin or whatever. And, you know, it doesn't necessarily get like that sort of um even on a very fundamental level, like that access to nature, whether that's going to the park or going for a walk on the weekend. Um, and I think we also, yes, absolutely. As people, as outdoor practitioners or, you know, people that are enthusiastic about being outside, I think we all need to be like kind of aware of that. And kind of when we're speaking to 
I think probably one of the reasons why uh, we kind of are one of the ways that we can tend to fall into that trap is like, let's say for Instagram or Facebook or any sort of social media is like, for the most part, the the circle within which that you're sort of projecting to is uh, is a bubble in some ways. I mean, I, I would say that most of the people that I interact with on social media would be outdoors people already. So it's very easy for me to talk about, uh, you know, a particular type of fire lighting or a particular type of whatever it might be. Um, but I need to like go back and think about like, where did I start? And and for example, like literally just what you're saying, one of the main uh, catalysts for me to get into the outdoors or get into bushcraft was, was like a a weekend away with work you know we were um one of the things that we did every year was the company i was with they were very you know very small group of people but it, we were fortunate enough that every year they would bring us out somewhere we'd go on a trip of some description and uh this one particular year we we stayed up in the we stayed on the west coast of ireland and one of the very small modules within the week that we were or the kind of couple of days that we were up there was was an introduction to bushcraft and I'd literally never heard the term before and it was it was no more than here's a fire steel here's a tarp um this is how you use it, you know a bit of cotton wool here's a setting up and it was like it was enough to get me hooked basically um and 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 also just to your point there about um sort of like getting into a little bit of nature I noticed on one of the uh, one of your youtube videos you talk about this uh, this um practice of like baselining um and i think one of the points that you made within that was that you don't necessarily have to be out in the middle of nowhere in order to achieve like sort of some sort of synchronicity could you talk to us a little bit about baselining because i think that would be a really nice place for people to start if they are trying to find ways to kind of realign themselves with uh, a, a piece of greenery really or a piece of nature this is something that i remember you and uh Mike uh, Douglas from Main Primitive Skill School that uh, that you guys were talking a lot about on the tracking course that we did together. So that's how Toby and I know each other from um, another mutual friend of ours where when Han and I went down to do a tracking course with him and uh, Mike and you were often referring to this baseline and that is something that I have thought about a lot more from the tracking course and not only applying it to the uh, tracking course in general but just on a holistic level if you will like what is the baseline when do i need to start to look at a a problem with the dogs being a problem or like what 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 is shifting so that i need to pay attention to just that so the baseline that toby is talking about is it's a good it's a good thing to pay attention to and what we can say about baseline is it's 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 there everywhere it's a useful skill in every aspect of your life, even in an urban environment. It's just hard. It's harder to learn about baseline in an urban environment. That's why, because your, your sensory overload inhibits the process. So that's why we like to explore and understand the process of identifying baseline in a natural environment, because it just gives us that far less stimuli, much less stress. So we can sort of tap into what baseline is but then once we understand that that will follow you for your entire life no matter where you go if you choose to use it so 
uh, and as I recall, the, I haven't been on YouTube for a while now. I, I stopped being very active sort of five, six years ago. But I think the baseline video I did out in California, if I remember correctly. So, you know, imagine I just sort of flew halfway around the world and stopped myself in a bioregion I had no familiarity with and said, okay, I'm just going to kind of figure this out and I might do some videos while I'm at it, right? <laughs> and starting with baseline was exactly that. And I sort of shared that in the video, as I recall. So that is about looking at the, the, the level of activity of the area you're in, what's normal, what's your impact in that, what's your manifestation, are you affecting baseline? That's really important. And then once you've established baseline, you should be able to recognize when baseline has changed or is moving. And what we typically say is a key phrase in a baseline shift is there's the absence of the normal or the presence of the abnormal. Okay. So to put it in a, in a more urban environment, um, as an extreme example, you know, imagine you're walking down the steps of a, of a subway or a, or a metro or an underground rail system. Uh, and it's, you know, an average sort of commuter period of time. And so it's quite busy, a lot of tannoy noise, a lot of footfall, lot, you know, a certain pace to everybody's movement. And then suddenly everybody stopped moving and listened to a sound. That would be a massive shift in baseline and should get your attention, right? <laughs> uh, especially if it's an explosive type sound that's going with it, right? There's, there's your shift in baseline. Something just happened. So that's an extreme example. It can be something in the natural environment much, much more subtle than that. And in fact, the closer we get to monitoring baseline and the subtle shifts, the more we understand we're improving what I call nature literacy um, or nature connection. So, you know, it's it's there everywhere. Um, it's very intuitive. Um, typically, you know, women are far better at this than men because by sheer virtue, they listen to their intuition much more. And we should empower that, that like that, that, you know, gnawing feeling in your stomach or that little voice in your head that just says, wait, what was that? Listen to that, you know? Um, so it's the pristine examples exist in nature, but baseline exists throughout everything. Uh, and monitoring baseline is um, a great skill to be able to do in, in every environment, let's say. I don't know if that answered your question, sorry. No, it definitely does. And I think it kind of feeds nicely into kind of the main topic that I that I think, um, or not the main topic, but at least the topic that I had kind of anticipated uh, prior to uh, kind of talking to you was, was this idea of um, situational awareness, urban preparedness, um, kind of just being... I think it's probably a practice more so than anything else is is this ability to be able to sit in an environment, whether that's people watching in a busy square or whether that's uh, sitting under a tree, um, kind of under, or as a human being, being kind of not just blissfully, just like a a, a, a a passenger on a on a on a treadmill kind of thing or like on a conveyor belt but more of a an active participant in a in any situation that you find yourself in um and being able to um 
not just kind of observe and be observant of your of your surroundings but also preempting um potential issues that you might have whether that's um a, a crossing like speaking in nature for example a crossing that might look particularly dangerous or the presence of animals around for example if you're in places like you know any obviously areas of the world that are a little bit more uh open to to predators and stuff but uh but even in 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 like again like uh on youtube like you were saying like the 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 situation of maybe finding yourself in an unfamiliar city for example and how to keep yourself kind of aware and active and sort of and a, and a sort of um yeah I mean, I mean that is kind of the crux of of the conversation i think and and i think uh it's it's probably at least from my understanding kind of one of your biggest uh sort of areas of expertise um and i would love to talk to you a little bit about that yeah, absolutely. And and that's a great example of where, you know, some of the wilderness survival skills would cross straight over very well to the, the urban preparedness, urban survival skills. And, and as you say, situational awareness, that's embedded there in sort of self-defense mindset, but it's it's often not misunderstood. And so that that's where you've got that great, you know, Mirce, you use the phrase off air of this red thread that sort of stitches things together. So what we do is we sort of acknowledge and refine the process of establishing a managing baseline in in ideally a natural environment or a managed environment where we can minimize our sensory overload and then apply that within an urban environment. And it's a twofold thing, isn't it? It's It's knowing that you can blend into that environment because you're on baseline or ideally just under or well, I'm way out of baseline here. And, you know, there's maybe nothing you can do about that. So it's either just just leave, <laughs> you know, get out of there because you're just so out of baseline. You are the anomaly. You are causing the problem. Or I understand I'm out of baseline. I'm baseline disruptor. So I will change my entire approach. Uh, and I'll use the most recent example of that. I should mention um, in terms of the scientific background, my wife is a neuroscientist and specifically a neuroanatomist. So a lot of the brain work we talk about is is sort of firsthand from the research that she does. Um, I'd say that's some interesting dinner, from India. dinner conversations. <laughs> yeah, yeah, was, yeah, you can imagine our house is, is a fun <laughs> place to be. But she's from India and, you know, I'll I'll travel back with her and we'll be some places, you know, and quite honestly, in a city of, you know, 400,000 people, I'm like the six foot white guy is me and that's it. Right. And you are so far out of baseline. It's untrue. And to try to blend in there is worse than standing out because that's very suspicious. So you just have to own your baseline disruption and say, well, I am here, but I understand my place in my baseline disruption as one example. Right. Um, And in terms of survivability, that's much better because you're going to interact at the right level. You know, if, if I'm sort of trying to act like I know what I'm doing in that town and I'm going to go to that temple and I'm going to try to blend in, that's going to spell out real problems for me because I don't know what I'm doing. Uh, and people like, why, you know, why are you here? And we're now very suspicious. Whereas if I'm just, you know, making a very public display that I am there with my wife who is on baseline, then it just, you get, you get a pass, you know? Oh. Yeah, 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 it's unusual, mixed race couple, but okay. You're like you're not doing anything that we're 
worried about or you stick to only certain parts of town you 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 avoid completely certain interactions no matter what because no good can come of it so you just basically follow the rules you follow the rules of the society that you're in but if you can't identify baseline you end up breaking you potentially can break some really serious rules without realizing it and then you've got yourself a problem but sort of like boiling it down a little bit i guess uh sorry toby like boiling it down a little bit uh it is understanding the baseline of your example for example there in india with your wife is the same as if you would be in the woods and accepting that you are in a a dire situation or you're in a survival situation or you have to sort of stop and think like i'm lost now as soon as i acknowledge this change in my baseline whether it's in india or in the woods or whatever it might be that's when you can actually start to work on what you have in ahead of you instead of sort of going all like completely ignorant about everything that's happening around you and just continue on with the destructive behavior that you already have. For sure. And I think Toby, you've kind of mentioned it as well. And on your videos is something about um, recognizing the signs of the fact that you are in a, in a situation that is a potential survival situation. Probably a lot, a, a lot of the, um, the rescue or like, you know, the, the instance famous cases of people, uh, you know, whether they get lost in the mountains or they get lost in the woods or whatever is their failure to understand that they uh, are in trouble. Absolutely. Uh, and and that's the thing. They've, they've gone so far off baseline that it's now irrecoverable, you know. So that, again, it's that early intervention concept of like, uh, am I sure I know where I am right now? Like, let's just take a minute right now before I like convince myself, of course, I know where I am. Da, 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 thump, thump, thump. Um, and now 20 minutes in, I really don't know where I am. It, it's that far more cautious approach, right? And for the listeners to get some reassurance on this, you know, establishing baseline is a very apex predator activity. So one of the things I give to the executives that I work with um, is what I call the three foot feline rule. If you think if you've got a cat and they've been, you know, in the house all night, warm, well fed, but they want to go out in the morning, meow, meow, let me out, right? You'll open the door and they'll scoot out and go three to five feet away and then like hook into cover and just sit and look and listen. And they'll establish what baseline is. They've come out of that warm, comfortable domestic environment and now they're engaging, like they're in the jungle in predation mode, right? So they're just going to figure out what's going on right now. Because whilst they're an apex predator, they're also within the food chain. There is things that will hunt domestic cats, whether people are aware of that or not. And so they're just kind of like, okay, where are we at this morning? And then they'll, you know, waddle around and, you know, lick themselves or start hunting or chase butterflies or whatever they're going to do because they're cats, right? Um, but it's it's that just sort of constantly figuring out where am I at in this environment? And, you know, is there any threats to me? That's the big part. That's that's the sort of, if we're going to go basal humanity back to our Neanderthal selves, that's what baseline does for us is basically says, is everything okay? Or should I be worried right now? And that's represented through the entire animal chain, uh, sorry, the entire food chain and animal kingdom, which we are part of. And that's part of that nature connectivity, isn't it? We, we have this arrogance that we're so separate from it. Um, 
especially in the words that, well, I just own it. Literally, oh, well, I own this forest. Well, okay, <laughs> you might own it on paper, but you're certainly not necessarily the most understanding of what's going on there. So baseline, it requires a degree of humility, should we say, or humbleness, but it really opens up that nature connection because we're acknowledging, you know, I need to be aware of my presence in this space, just like I wouldn't in an urban environment, you know, is there something that's a threat to me right now? You know, do I truly own this space? Am I the apex predator here? Or am I a little bit further down the food chain than I thought, you know? Do you, uh, do you look at, because um, after Hannah and I did the tracking course uh, at your place, I um, started to look at baseline from both a micro, macro, and then a mega perspective, if you will lack of a better term um where the micro perspective is if i open the door in the morning i sort of know what to expect both in the dog yard in front of the house all of these things while the uh, macro perspective might be if i actually go and stand in the dog yard i know what to expect like the baseline is there and if anything is off then I will see it, see it. But then the the mega, if you will, is if I go into town and if everything is okay, if everything is as 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 normal, that's sort of nothing that is taking anything off in 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 uh, my way of seeing the world. But is it? Do you ever think about them in those sort of levels? Because you can take it down to whatever level or whatever situation i guess that you find yourself in to try and find the baseline so it doesn't always have to be this uh big project i guess of uh, thinking that you're traveling abroad and figuring out like all right how do i figure out the baseline in paris it's how the baseline when you're going to work yeah yeah i mean it's it's, it's ever present um and the fact is as as i alluded to earlier it's when you reconnect it is you know this is hardwired in us as tool-using primates. And so it's very intuitive. So if if we sit and discuss it, I'll think about it in those levels, all the way up to geopolitical. So long as that world leader is doing what that world leader normally does, I'm not worried about that world leader. But the moment they come off baseline and go, you know, you know what? I'm, yeah, you know what? I might just do this. It's like, whoa, you got my attention. That's not normal, right? Um, but I, I'm not often not thinking about it. It's just it's you're just feeling it more, and just once you get that sensation, just it's just that stop, that early intervention. Whoa, hang on, you know, like yeah, normally this this lady in the store is really friendly and and has a little chat. And today, as I bought my groceries, like uh, nothing, you know, and that might not be a threat. That might be going back to the mental health conversation of just you know I see the initiative to be like, well, that's out of baseline. You just be like, oh hey, is everything okay? You know, or, um, you know, de- depending on, I guess, the value of that interaction relationship to me is whether I just acknowledge it and move on or whether I put effort into it. Um, th- this is the hard part with nature connection, right? You know, there's a reason we've disconnected. Because uh, it's, it's very hard to cope in an urban environment once you open these senses up. And so, you know, sometimes it's just going to be a case of acknowledge it and move on, you know, because because you'll see all of the problems of humanity, you know, you'll go to some areas, some cities, and it, it, it's just everything's there. And and it's it's empathetically and emotionally 
raw and 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 challenging and that's why you end up living in the forest right you know what I mean? so you just can't deal with people anymore because you just see it for what it is so 100%. it's a very powerful tool but we need to be careful with it and that's why often as we reconnect with nature and we go deeper into it we move further and further from those urban densities and those societies that we were maybe familiar with before because we just no longer identify with that. And then, Patrick, as you said, you end up in that like little bubble of like, well, these are the people I hang out with now and I have no understanding of how these people can cope wearing a suit and tie and going to an office every day. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't try to connect with them and say oh. a little bit of what we do might help you. If you're going to stay in that life, that's totally cool. Get it, yeah. understand it. But, you know, you might feel that little bit better or benefit that little bit more if you just engage in these activities or value the nature and if we get to the bigger subject now you you know the mega baseline as we look at environmental issues especially that have been highlighted lately you know the the problems we have on the planet because we don't care for it and we don't care because we don't identify with it so this rewilding yourself aspect is critical because if people don't value nature they won't protect nature and what we now need is an entirely new conversation about how we value and protect nature because newsflash, the planet's going to do fine and it'll do better without us than with us. So there's no threat to the planet. There's a threat to the human species, if you want to look at it in those terms. And we need to be our own solution on that and just just put ourselves back in baseline. We're As a species, we're out of baseline with the planet right now. And if it's planet versus humans, we know who's going to win. It's that simple, right? Even if we press big red buttons, the planet's still going to be here. We're not. So if, we, if we're going to take baseline to its largest interpretation of itself, that's the level we're looking at. It's super, super interesting. And I think, there again, there's like so much in there. Uh, it's kind of almost... Where, where do you go from there? But I, 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 I yeah, gr- sorry that I, no, I no, didn't no, mean no. to go that meta, but Dude, like that, I, we I love there. it. Honestly, <laughs> honestly, I love it. Like literally I, I'm like, just all I want to be able to do is like take notes right now so I can remember to go back and talk about that specific thing. But, um, but one of the things that kind of struck me is, uh, well, first of all, like you said, like people that work in cities and people that like, you know, get to be outside a, you know, AKA, or, you know, like uh, Jeremias and yourself and stuff where, your lifestyle and your your career and your your kind of essentially your means of making money is based uh, fundamentally in nature um and for myself a little bit more now than it ever has been um but i suppose i'm lucky in the sense that or not lucky but I, i'm fortunate in the sense that i've had the perspective of both sides i have worked in a city i've worked in offices and i've literally had to completely change my lifestyle and literally move countries twice um, to fulfill a desire to be outside more and to have more of a, a nature balance. Um, but of course, a lot of people aren't lucky enough to be able to do that. Um, but but one of the things that I think is uh, is interesting is these this sort of like going about your business day to day, not necessarily having a baseline or even being aware of it because... Um, things are just functioning the way they're supposed to for you every day. There's a certain routine, particularly for people that live in cities that take the same train at the same time every day. They have the same thing for breakfast. They get the same coffee order every morning. They go to the office at the same time and they leave at the same time. There's a, there's a, there's a, a certain system and routine there that 
if 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 any of those cogs are like sort of uh, fucked with for want of a better word, or there's a spanner thrown the works, people literally don't know what to do with themselves. And I think there's this like business as usual approach to the world right now even though clearly things are not business as usual, whether that's environmental issues, whether that's, well, perfect example, fucking Corona pandemic, you know, it's it's like nothing has been more obvious to us in terms of like how unhealthy and unfit and unaware of our natural world is uh, more so than um, this thing that has literally been a spanner in the works. And I think, what we're seeing now is that uh, not to get so doom and gloom about this whole episode, but the reality of it is what we're seeing now is that, you know, there's more natural disasters, there's more floods, there's more um, drought, there's more everything, natural disasters more so than anything else ha- have crept into our, um, our news lines now. And, and I think we need to be business as usual is not, it's not, anymore the way that things are going to be and i think it's only going to become more unstable um down the line and particularly in the you know in the next 10 to 15 20 years um and i think that's something that probably uh, yourself toby is like something that you're stressing and something that you're talking about is what can we be doing as like people that live in urban environments not necessarily like live on homesteads like what Jeremias and, and, you know, like, which is a really beautiful uh, lifestyle and, and way to be. But for a lot of people, um, it's simply not possible. And I think one of the things that I love about what you do, Toby, is that you talk about these things in a very rational and sort of uh, simple kind of perspective. It's like, do you have enough food in your house to last seven days if the power goes out? Um, just very simple things like that. And I'd love to like hear a little bit of your kind of mindset on those things, Toby. Okay. Again, that was a long question. Um, so to, to, to address that, and that was great how you phrased it, that the natural disasters are creeping into the newsfeed because they've always been there. They were just never prioritized in the media before. Um, and, and that makes me nervous because our media is a fear-based agenda and, and they just like to, make things big and scary and that never benefits the conversation so what i would say in the first instance for people in a in a dense urban environment working in a city what we need and what and what we have to do as practitioners is help them find value in nature any nature you know we're not on about pristine national reserves and parks now like that they value that small green space that might be in the courtyard of their apartment building, all right? Or the plants that they grow in their house because plant sales have gone through the roof in lockdown. Don't know if you're aware of that. People have, have tried to bring nature into them. Um, and, and they aspire to spend more time in nature. Without that, there's no point trying to do anything else. Right? There's, there's a, a clear sequence of steps that needs to happen but the first thing people need to feel is some reconnection with nature and the value of nature. And a, a huge amount of my energy is on that right now. And going back to that point of meeting people where they're at, right? Nothing else can happen until that first part. And what got me started with the nature-based therapy stuff, I remember watching even just prior to the pandemic really kicking off uh, as people like biophilia movement was coming through quite strong and and more you know instant influencers and the like were, were going out to nature 
and I'm doing that in inverted commas in case anyone's unsure for my voice tone. Um, but what they were doing, and you could see it evidently, is they were going into nature, but treating it like they were in a zoo or a museum. There was this clear, like just glass partition between them and the natural environment. There was no interaction there, none, right? Uh, and there was this hesitance. And what we understand from the scientific literature is nature reconnection or nature connection. This is hardwired in all of this. We've just unplugged the wiring as we've progressed from childhood to adulthood. But that reconnection exists in a multi-sensory plane. We must engage with the natural environment in a multi-sensory manner, not just our eyes, our ears, our smell, our taste, our touch, everything, right? And we can even allege to go towards sixth sense, you know, on the spiritual side of things if we wish to. So we've got to start there. Uh, and, and, I'm, and I won't go any further on that point right now. We can do it. We can do an episode two if you want to, because unless we get unless we get that done, there's no point saying you need to purchase this and you need to drive this car and eat this food. And that doesn't matter because you won't value it until we reconnect with the natural environment and appreciate nature's value. Nothing else can happen. And we can't do that by berating people or screaming at people, or pulling angry faces at people. The Aramis knows exactly what I'm talking about now. He's probably smiling. I'm not going to name her, right? This is not the way. We need to have meaningful conversation and lead people gently by the hand and say, you'll enjoy this. If, you know, spend time with that plant, spend time in this area, move this way, think this way, approach it this way, and you'll feel a lot better about a lot of things. And then you'll start to think, well, wow, okay, that was different. Tell me more. And we can have that reasoned, measured discussion about, you know what, things just aren't right, are they? And that's what the pandemic's done for a lot of people. It's just said, it's just not right, is it? There's, there's something off here. And let's, let's have that conversation. It's going to take longer and it's not going to get anywhere near as many likes. Or it's not going to go viral, but that's, that's, that's not the real world. That's social media. That's an algorithm telling you this is how the world works. And it doesn't. We are now multi-generational species looking at technology that didn't exist 20 years ago and saying, this is how humanity functions. And it doesn't. That's the neuroscience being hijacked, if you care to look at it. Not going dis- to you know, social media too much because we're going to get cancelled. But what we need is <laughs> no, that but I think... meaningful connection, and that is by people that are deeply connected to the nature already, helping those that are disconnected reconnect, and ensuring those that are connected don't disconnect. And that's the youth and the child projects, right? We are born wild, and then that's just crushed out of us by the system. And that's why this, this surge of forest schools throughout Europe now is absolutely brilliant brilliant because that's where it should be and we should be encouraging that and rewarding that and highlighting the importance of that and you know getting parents to engage with their children in those spaces at that level or aspire to keep forest school going through the whole weekend with mom and dad um you know or or however the family is made up um so it's not 
that you just engage engage in nature Monday to Friday, little Billy or little Jenny, but through the weekends mm. as well. That's where the magic's going to happen yeah. because that's what we've lost. Yeah, yeah, and that's it, it very, very, very the, interesting. Yeah, yeah, it should be part of the 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 day the the week to week, and I think we're probably better like better equipped for it here in Scandinavia, whether that's Finland or, or Sweden or Denmark, uh, than than the rest of the world. But you see, I've seen a lot of it in the UK as well, like a lot of those uh, schools that you're talking about. Um, but I mean, just to, to speak to something that you said there about like, you know, the, the conversations that we're having, like they're not going to go viral. And I think that's like literally a perfect analogy for this, this podcast in and of itself. Like, um, I think the, the, the idea is that you can have like long form conversations that are not necessarily like super popular top topics, but probably conversations that just kind of need to be had, um, and, and, and one of the things that I was thinking about there that, that you mentioned was, and you, you used the word connections a lot there, um, which I find really interesting. I, I remember uh, I, I recently finished a book called Lost Connections, and it was kind of more, I'm, I'm, I'm sure you're probably aware of the book itself, but um, it kind of speaks to that sort of like mental health uh as an industry, so to speak, and um, how it has been hijacked by pharma and things like that. And, and in some ways, at least from the author's perspective, who um, has spent most of their life on prescription medication, antidepressants and things, is that the ability to be able to tend a garden or to uh, grow some uh, flowers or, you know, even in urban environments is, is like have a small patch of uh, you know, greens to grow. I think um, from my understanding, uh, th- those things can be so exponentially uh, beneficial to the, to the human mind and the human psyche. The ability to tend to something and grow something in nature, I think is is really harps back or really kind of connects uh, with our old brains, so to speak. Absolutely. And in fact, you know, a huge volume of the existing nature-based therapy is around that gardening aspect. That's that's the thing that's been studied so much. And, and you know, not only the scientific results, but the practical results are self-evident that, you know, that's just so therapeutic. But again, let's just break that down. You know, I made the point before, the magic happens with multi-century engagement and gardening is the perfect expression of that. I'm, you know, I'm not just walking through the area. I'm stopping. I'm feeling the plants. I'm literally got my hands in the soil. I'm smelling the soil. I'm smelling the leaves. I'm smelling the produce. And eventually I'm gathering it and taking it home. Well, maybe I'm eating it right there, you know, or taking it home and eating it. You, you've gone through that full sensory engagement through the life cycle of that garden. And then you repeat it all again, you know, and, and so we're, we're into that under, you know, now we're back in our animal kingdom placement, aren't we? That I'm both a caretaker and a producer and a consumer. So it's cyclical. I'm not separate from the system. I'm in the system. And if you want to keep that at fruit and vegetables, that's great. But if you want to express that to fishing and hunting, that's just a larger expression of exactly mm-hmm. that same thing. Right. That's, that's super interesting. Like, yeah, yeah, uh, a little bit at least. But I mean, it is super interesting what you're talking about, Toby. And, and uh, we've had a lot of discussions in the same sort of range off air, I guess, uh, just face to face. But it's all of these things that you're talking about now, like 
when you're doing the Arctic survival courses or the preparedness courses, like how much of this sort of holistic approach to uh, life baseline and all of these things is sort of mixed in with, for lack of a better term, hard skills? Because you, you were mentioning a little bit about that you need to have a connection to something to be able to care for it. And it doesn't matter what car you drive that you that's your what's the term bug out vehicle whatever it is uh if you don't have a connection to the natural world so the simple answer is it depends <laughs> um and it, it's about that meeting your what i would call a student what other people might call a client like where they're at so there's there's some courses i run there's some students slash clients i have that aren't going to ever work at this sort of ethereal connectivity, holistic end, right? So I'm going to have to put things in, in a lot more hard skill manner. And I affectionately call it Bear grillsing it, right? Uh, and I don't wish to take anything away from Edward. He, he earns a lot more than me. He's the highest paid survivalist on the planet. He's clearly doing something right. And anybody that promotes getting people outdoors has got my vote. But you know, he's done it in uh, in a very mass commercialization way, and that's fine. Right. <laughs> I, know, I know. I know exactly what you're talking about. You know, uh, you're, you're good. So <laughs> if I need to meet them there and it's all go, 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 skill, 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 challenge, 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 that's fine. And what that means is these lessons are all in there, but they're not so explicit. So this is the true element of coyote teaching, right? That we're just slipping in with the tricksters. We just, it's in there, but we're not telling them. And, they, and they're getting it, but they don't even know it, right? Ethically, morally, possibly questionable, but ultimately it's for the greater good, so we're okay. At the other end, it might be the seemingly absence of any hard skills at all and the very connective, and I want to sit and harmonize and meditate and breathe and move but the hard skills are important the mix is the key so again the hard skills are in there but very muted and 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 much softer in appearance than they would be and it's about packaging the product correctly and steering people to the right course for where they fit in student profile so it's one managing student expectations and two ensuring that they land at the right place um and that's why a lot of times I, I'm working, you know, as a subcontractor with many different people. So I get different demographics. Um, but it's but it's also you know, having a product range available. So there, there is a little bit something for everybody, shall we say. And most importantly, knowing what lane you're in and when to pass that to somebody else. Right. So I'm, you know, I probably do almost as many referrals to other instructors and schools as I do accepting students in some of my programs because there's some that are so far down the softer skills end that it's hard for me to engage with them. It's not for me, but I know exactly where they need to go and I send them there and then when they're ready to come to me, that person will send them to me and there'll be some people so far out on, on the extreme end. It used to be for me, but it's not anymore, <laughs> you know, but I know where to send them and when they're ready, they'll come to me. And then, you know, the other demographics that you know, they might arrive at me and depend on which direction their journey goes, they'll stay with me for a little while and then get sent on. Because as I said earlier, we all have a different piece of the puzzle. We can't own the whole process. 
We can't, and we shouldn't. That's not how communities built. I'm the I'm the baker, the bread, the, the blacksmith, the shaman. No, no, everybody's got their role, you know. So it's own your bit of it. Communicate with those left and right of you. Know who's around you, and so you do right by your student and or client um, to give them the the best chance of the the most growth and development they could experience, and that's only fair sure. in my mind. Yeah. 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 I know. I mean, there's the, the old saying is that, uh, you know, uh, it takes a village to raise a child. Um, you know, everybody's got something to, to add and to offer. Um, could you talk to me just, I suppose, just touching on, on something that you said earlier about like us speaking to a particular demographic or, or maybe taking for granted that somebody might understand what it is that we're talking about. Um, could you explain to us a little bit about what you consider hard skills versus soft skills? Um, and in terms of that, as in, in on a teaching basis, what would you consider are soft skills versus hard skills? Because I think the, the, the conversation that I've had with people, like people have different understandings of what those things are. Um, so I'd, I'd love to know what you're kind of, where um, you stand on those things. <laughs> I'm, So let me answer this way. Let, let's try this. Let, let me let me give you something. We'll see if this works. Um, very much coming out of the work that I did with uh, my business partner, Selco, very much in the urban preparedness space, um, down in the Balkans, um, taking very, very highly applied, robust lessons from the conflict down there. We typically segregate course concepts into two different classifications and these are either educational or experiential so in an educational course i'm going to want you hydrated well fed well rested and able to completely absorb all of the lessons i'm trying to teach you all right so it's it's going to be quite a heavy exchange of information and probably a little bit around monkey see, monkey do. Here's the demo. Try to emulate that. Make that work for you as the, as the individual you are with the body that you're in. If we need to amend anything or adjust anything, we can do that, you know, at individual coaching level. Experiential is uh, a little bit more sort of scenario-based or it's, it's very much swimming in the deep water. All right, this thing is happening. What now? Right? And... We'll just, we'll let it run. And because I come from a very strong background in risk management, I'm prepared to let things run probably far further than any of my colleagues around the world. And there's probably a couple of videos that demonstrate some of that to a point. Um, and then we'll debrief that and say, what happened? What worked? What didn't? Are we going to do that again? Or have we got the lessons learned? And you're going to typically be quite under duress for the duration of that. Now, it doesn't mean they're separate courses, but it does mean in your student journey, they need to know where they're at at the moment, right? So, you know, here we're educational, take it easy, you know, need to get to the toilet, get to the toilet, grab a coffee, have a, you know, fika if we need to. Experientially, is like, no, no, hold on and hope you come out the other end, right? So in all of those hard skills and soft skills are present, it's just how much pressure you're applying to them. Now, I, 
well, that does answer your question from my mm-hmm. perspective, mm-hmm. but you probably never had an answer like that before. No, I love it. <laughs> so I'll, I'll leave it at that and I'll let you follow up with any other questions or uh, wherever you want to go with it. No, I mean, I've never thought about, and, and I think uh, like Jeremias, maybe you can speak to this because uh, I think I've probably spoken enough, but uh, the the difference there between an experiential, well, experience versus a, I, I can't remember what the, exactly what you said there, but like it's like a knowledge base educational, right, right, exactly, educational versus experiential, and I think um, something that I, both myself and Jeremy's are trying to do on a, on a kind of a, a soft level is, to, I suppose, introduce a little bit of, of both of those things, um, but I've never thought about it in those two distinct categories before, so I find that absolutely fascinating. Um, and, and I suppose it's it, both of those uh, ways of experiencing a course are in some ways both educational. You're going to learn something, whether it's through experience or whether it's through uh, taking notes, so to speak, and being fully hydrated to be able to process information very intentionally. Um, I think neither neither is better than the other or, or more valuable than the other. Um, and that's the point, right? you need hard skills and soft skills. Mm-hmm. You need education and experience. That's why I answered that question that way, because super interesting. We, we want to prioritize one over the other and we can't, they're, they're both important. So Jeremias, you, you know, you can do your Jaeger exam. That doesn't mean you can hunt, right? Just because you've hunted since you were five doesn't mean you'll pass the Jaeger exam, right? Yeah. It is a perfect example of uh, here in Sweden taking your your hunting exam. You can pay a whatever the fee is, then you take a three day course, and then you get your license if you pass it. And but that doesn't mean that you know anything about hunting. It means that you're it only means that you are given the permission, I guess, to own a firearm and to go out and hunt on the designated land area that you are allowed to hunt on. Uh, it does not make you a hunter so but and and i've done two courses uh together with toby one here uh at the homestead where hen and i live we did a first aid course and then the tracking course that i mentioned before and now when you're when you're talking about it in in the in the perspective that you're talking right now toby it is like i get these like vivid images in my head of the exact things that you're talking about with the educational versus uh experience-based teaching and how important those two things are that they intertwine because i mean you could have for the example the tracking course you could have done it or the the first aid course like you could have done it very very hard skill based where it's like this is how you do this this is how you do this this is how you do this fine you pass that here pat on the back off you go good job or you could always stress test the things uh that you've been doing on the educational side to sort of see like what did actually land in these people's head? Did they actually listen? Did they understand? Like where are they in the and how? And as I understand it, that you're doing it, it's like you're sort of by stress testing it through the experience. You're seeing what level you should bring to the next session of the course, if you will. Am I understanding it right? So sort of if everything is working fine, then you're going on to the next one. Uh, otherwise, you stand, stay on the basics, if you will. I'm doing air quotes now. Uh, 
No, you're absolutely right, yeah, Amir. So as an instructor, it's far more labor intensive. It's a lot more work because you're constantly having to manage the, you know, observe the student's level of understanding. But then that's our job, isn't it? Is to give these students, that's why I call them students, not clients, to give them the best possible journey with the most absorption of skill in the shortest possible time. And so we teach and then we apply pressure to those, um, you know, we practice and then we do it under pressure and then we see where we're at and are we ready to move on or do we need to do that again? Or like, no, we've got it and, and away we go from there. So it's really fun that you're sort of in lifetime probably recalling certain parts of the course or courses and now going, ah, oh, that's what was going on there, <laughs> right? Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean it, make, it makes so much sense when you're, when you're sort of describing it in a way that you're describing it now. It's like the stress test is so valuable to see where you have anyone on a course or anyone or just around you just to see whether they like from a preparedness perspective i guess if they're an asset or or not in a long-term perspective so the most important part there is that stress test is entirely for the student's benefit this is where we can get a bit wobbly is if it's to prove my ego if it's to show you do it worse than me or i do it better than you then it's completely invalid so it's all about, you know, empowerment, another word that's being hijacked by the corporate, empowering the student to, to either embrace mistakes, you know, and learn from them or to get it right and get that reward of like, yeah, that that was brilliant. You know, good effort. And I, I have this phrase and um, I would love to give credit for the interview it came out of. And now I can't remember who I was talking to, but I said, good instructors ensure their students pass great instructors allow their students to fail right and so with the experiential what we're doing is creating that environment to say it is better to fail and learn here in training than in real life that's what it's here for that's why we train and and that's a very military perspective actually you know if 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 you want to look at sort of the origins of that you know train hard fight easy let's hit the failure points now and work back from there um but we've got to have both. You know, we can't just PowerPoint our way out of these problems and we can't just throw people in the woods and say, you'll figure it out. There's there's a balance in there. And there's still hard skills and soft skills. But depending on the course you're on is what I would name as hard and soft skills. I think in this sort of larger space we're looking at, this 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 overview we're currently discussing, that that was my best answer to the question. Yeah, no, that, that, that it, 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 is, it is a really, really good good answer um to it i mean but if 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 we just for the sake of of um continuing the experience versus um educational aspect in in a in a course like i know that you've been doing uh the arctic survival courses for a very very long time in this region both north of me and now a little bit south of me and a big bag of of uh mixed locations as well so how have that sort of evolved from i guess when you started to to where it is now in a perspective of how the participants is approaching it i guess are they coming more and more like completely for lack of better term clueless now than they were before or is it sort of a similar demographic throughout these years that you've been doing it the demographics definitely changed and 
there's the, the two biggest factors is access to information prior. So you'll have people turn up here now thinking they know the environment because they watched a lot of YouTube videos. That's problematic. And they have less time. So when I first started, my shortest course was 12 days long. Right. And I'll now do an extreme cold weather experience of three days because that's the time people have got. You know, that people's time is so precious. You can't demand that much of it. Um, even even for the you know very high end client, they're actually paying to save time. And so what that's pushed us towards is um, the educational is online. You can learn it before you get here but you just learn it from the right source in the right context. And then you're just, you're jumping way quicker to experiential. So my first 12 day course, you'd be in hard standing accommodation for three nights before you did one night out to then come back in again. Right. And then you do two nights out and come back in and you go for your three nights out. Now it can be like within a day of getting here, you're two nights out and then you're going home and, and that's market demand. So that's been the biggest change I've seen. And I'll be honest, I resisted that a lot in the beginning. It was like, no, it takes this long. And now I'm thriving in the challenge of like, well, that's how it was always done. That doesn't mean it's the way it's always always going to be. And I'll name Nims now specifically as, as the guy that totally changed my viewpoint on this. Um, I don't know if you guys are aware, Nims Periaj. I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name wrong. Sorry, Nims. Um, there's 14 mountains over 8,000 meters tall. And he set out um, to climb them in record time. And the previous record was eight years. And he did it in nine months. Right? Now, he did it in a slightly insane manner, but he was a very confident chap. Um, and it just totally changed my perspective on how we measure interaction with nature and the timescales to understand certain things. And he's the living proof. And I've got his book, signed copy, and following his journey, um, and he's Nepalese. What's his name for people who are listening? Um, now, can I Google it real quick so I get it right? Because I, I really want to give him credit because he's, he's a lovely chap. Nir, Nir, Nirmal Puria. I have no idea how, how to pronounce that. And he's got a Netflix. Nir, he's got a Netflix documentary coming. Um, Nirmal Purja, N I R M A L P U R G A, affectionately known as Nims. All right. I mean, uh, from 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 that experience, Toby, of, of seeing how you mentioned it, the sort of YouTube version of someone coming in and and uh, thinking that they know the climate that they're in and all of these things like have you seen this sort of i mean we're we're deep into youtube affecting our everyday lives and our outdoor experiences and and almost everything that we're doing but have you seen this sort of uh transfer of i guess knowledge and or perceived knowledge into getting kit instead of actual experience oh yeah Oh yeah, that yeah, <laughs> preach to the choir. Um, so it, it has become this checklist mentality. As long as I buy this, then I'm good. Uh, and in the urban preparedness side of things, that's 
almost fatally flawed. It is just such a checklist mentality. Buy all this, stick it in your cupboard. In the event of civil war, you're good. And it's like, you know, nothing could be further from the truth, actually. And so that's... um, So it's two things, isn't it? It's saturation of information that social media is responsible for. And then it's commercial modeling. You know, this is where the money's at. This is where your margin's at. This is where your percentage's at. So anybody that gets into the game and wants to help is just another useless voice in the sea of voices because they maybe know something or maybe know nothing. And typically the people that really know things aren't social media savvy. So get drowned out by those that, that are going for commercial gain. And then when they get popular enough, they just get, you know, the, 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 um, uh, what's the word now, Jeremias, uh, like commission rates, um, yeah, there's a specific word for it, you know, commission-based sales and, you know, things like that. So now they're just pushing that product. Hey guys, I use this. You should buy this too. Click this link here and I'll get richer. And, you know, it is what it is. It's it's fine. That's that's the market, but it's not the reality. And as I said earlier, you know, things that we now measure as this is real, twenty years ago didn't exist, even in people's minds. So how real is it? Do you see any any difference in the, um, I guess the the um, Arctic survival circles, bushcraft circles versus the. Um, preparedness circles in in uh, regards to looking at kit because i mean in if if you i guess follow or or i don't know what the what the correct term would be if you're inspired by the late morse kohansky for example he was always talking about like the the more you know the less you carry kind of mentality but it sort of seemed like bushcraft is almost tending to go a little bit away from that but it also seems like the preparedness community is very far away from that where you're like you were mentioning like it is this kit list of what you should have at home and if you have 100 liters of water you have uh, 15 kilos of rice it doesn't matter let the russians come kind of thing could could i could i just like augment that a little bit because i think exactly what you're talking about there Jeremy, is it's, it's like check t- taking off a list in order to feel like you're prepared. Um, but I think there is, and, and it kind of speaks a little bit to what you were talking about there earlier about going on courses and failing in training rather than failing in real life. I think one of the things that I feel like people are maybe compensating, and I'm just speaking very generally now, but um, like you said, they are, they are compensating the the checklist for their abilities but not just their abilities but also just like being honest with themselves about their actual abilities you know you see these um preppers and things for want of a better term uh on and of course they're sensationalized on these shows but you have these like very extreme examples of like preppers and again i'm saying that in like inverted commas of people that have escape plans so to speak or they have like a compound or they have some sort of uh thing in place that if such and such happens i'll be able to get from a to b and then thus till to c but the lack of training and ability to get from a to b and actually drilling that a couple of times um they're at odds with their 
reality versus their expectations. And I think one of the perfect examples I think of, I remember watching a show where this woman had this like, you know, plan of, well, I'm going to like have this backpack and I've got this go bag and it's got all the kit I'm needing it. And I'm going to carry it from this. And I'm going to get to this truck that blah, 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 blah. But it turned out that the pack was so fucking heavy for her that she literally couldn't get from point A to B, which was from her house to whatever transportation vehicle she had, because she had so much kit with her that she literally couldn't carry it. So her physical abilities did not match her expectations or her plan and i think that was probably down to lack of um drilling or lack of planning or lack of like physically like mapping this thing out like how far is it can i carry this how much can i actually carry how many how long can i go without having to take a break i mean these are very practical things that i think people neglect and instead compensate with kit or or checklists as you say yeah so the the key word here is context and that's what's missing all right and let let's use your example of like some of these reality tv shows mm-hmm. um they're completely missing context and deliberately so right why because right, right, right. why does that show exist does that show exist to, to help educate and inform people on reasonable, measurable actions to take in the event of an emergency, mm-hmm. or is it mm-hmm. entertainment? Right, right. It's entertainment. So what they want is the biggest car crash they can muster <laughs> because that's <laughs> yeah, what drives viewers, right? It's true. It's true. And so, and understand, I've been interviewed for any number of reality based tv shows and i have no intention of going to any of them i just engage in the process because i'm always fascinated at the things they'll ask me and what they'll prioritize right and none of it's grounded in reality and none of the people producing these shows have any depth of knowledge or understanding of reality and certainly urban preparedness and what they're cashing in is on a, a is a trend in a market all right or they're creating the trend in the market and so, yeah, when, when like you say the lady can't even pick up the bag that she spent the last episode telling you is the best bag ever to go to the best truck ever. It's just hysterical, right. isn't it? But it's yeah. not helping. Yeah. yeah. It's not no, helping. No, and I'm not trying, I suppose I'm not, not, not to poke fun at that, but it's just an example. And I'm sure there's many people that do prioritize their lists or their kid over the physical demands of yes getting and that's why we should poke fun at that because it's ridiculous right, right. because yeah. it's complete misprioritization so as you said Yeremias Moore's and I quote him myself the more you know the less you carry but it's a process so people begin with familiarity so if I take people and say you don't need anything they stop listening because every frame of reference they've got says you need gear so well let's have gear Let's just not go crazy. Don't spend too much on it. All right. This is the, this is your gear. This is the requirement. This is this, this, that, and the other. And then, you know, depending on how far they go on their journey, they might come out the other end in both wilderness and urban survival of like, you know, I'm so skilled up now. I don't need half this gear. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that like that, that now you're getting towards like, the advanced stages, because we talked about educational experiential, but let's talk about introductory, intermediate and advanced, right? In skills, hard and soft. The, the more advanced you are, 
in both hard and soft skills, the less you need. And we'll often close out courses in the Balkans, Selk and I, having had, you know, had people follow us around for multiple days in multiple locations, do multiple things, and then ask them, how much gear do we carry? And they'll be like, oh, nothing. Right. Like, what? Like, yeah, like, Perfect. now that I look, yeah. you're like, you, you've got the clothes you're in, or maybe a Leading small bag. Yeah. You know why? No, why? Because you're carrying it all. You know, if we need anything, you've got it. So why do we need to carry it for? <laughs> you're just our pack mules for this trip. Ah, what? You're the donkey. You're the donkey. That's the level you're at. Sorry to be rude. You're the donkey. If I need it, can I just borrow your fire steel while I do this demo? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, it's a really it, good it. fire steel. Right? That's the difference between advancing. And... <laughs> I, I let the cat out of the bag there. Maybe we need to edit this part out so that's, people don't no, know. No, no, I'm not editing. But, no, that's brilliant. But that's the reality, isn't it? Like your ability to just mm. take what you need from the environment that you're in, urban mm. or, or, or wilderness, and then know what's the vital thing to carry that cannot be substituted or easily salvaged, salvaged in that environment. That's the key. And that's where you end up stripping all the gear out and saying, so long as I've got a this, 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 I'm good. Because I'll always, I can either do without it or I'll find it in the environment that I'm in. And so that mindset, moving on from the situational awareness now that we mentioned earlier, that mindset of, you know, the average urban environment has got, Everything you need scavengeable or salvageable within it. So you, you need to carry far less. But, ooh, that's dirty. You, you want me to go in a, in, a, in a bin and get a can out and boil water in that? No way. I'll take my $164 titanium cook set endorsed by, insert, you know, horrific American instructor here. Um, and it would, you know, what do you need a cook set for? What, what do you, in an urban environment, what do you need any of that for? You're, you're never more than five meters away from all of those resources. And you see on the YouTube, <laughs> you when know, I was in can, Paris, yeah. you know, that's what I was identifying. Guys, all of these resources are here and, and more importantly, aren't valued by the populace. So you're not going to be in competition. What's the big difference between urban survival and wilderness survival is population density versus availability of resources. But trust me, in urban survival, in the first few days, no one's fighting for the cans that are in the bins, right? They're not focused on that. Whereas if that's the level you're already at, as long as I can get this out, clean it and boil water in it, then I'm good. Mm. Then you're laughing, mm. right? Context is key. Mentality is is more important there, I suppose. And it, yeah, that is something that you have spoken about, again, on your, on your uh, YouTube channel, is that there's a bin behind me here and... Uh, you know, for most people, that's, you know, the, the, the mindset involved in rummaging through a bin is, uh, is so alien to them that, you know, they didn't, nobody like, that's the last resort for a lot of people. But if you're already, like you said, if you're already in that mindset, it's like, I'm going to be, uh, able to find what I need, especially in a, in an urban environment, like you're saying, um, I mean, there's classic. And here's the fun part. How do you rummage through the bin and not disturb baseline? Hmm. Well, maybe you're the best person to tell us how. I'm not going to. That, we'll save that for episode two. <laughs> okay. But just just to understand where all this fits together, you know, we, we took baseline in that very 
<laughs> we took baseline that very natural environment, but that's the thing. How do I perform this action that for the vast majority of this population, it would be reviled or disgusting and not break baseline? And of course, you monitor baseline to understand how you can manage baseline. So there's absolutely a way that you can rummage through a bin in an urban environment and no one will pay any attention to you. But I'm not going to give you that one right now. No, Toby, I love it. I mean, look, I mean, we're at an hour and a half now and we've had a, it, this has been honestly, hands down, probably one of my favorite episodes I've ever recorded. This For is sure. the 50th episode, actually. Yeah, I mean, this is episode 50 of the podcast. We've been running it for three years now. I've been running it. I, I saw on Facebook yesterday that uh, the first episode came up on Spotify three years ago. So this is episode 50, and I can't think of a better uh, guest to have on than yourself, Toby. It's been an amazing conversation, super knowledgeable, super informative, and, and you know, thanks so much for giving us your time. But is there somewhere that people can be pointed towards if they want to get more information about you or what you do and, you know, you know what, what what's the plan for the next year or so for yourself? So, um yeah, that's that's really split into two parts. There's, there's a lot of focus on the, the, the nature-based therapy type stuff, the restorative nature. And um, because of the restrictions in travel and still the unknowns right now, a lot of that is just happening locally here in Sweden. And so for people that are interested in that, that aren't in Sweden, I would say, look for me on LinkedIn under my name, Toby, mm-hmm. Toby Cowan. And it's keeping it professional, I like keeping it. it professional. And for those that are in the Scandics, <laughs> uh, look on hello nature, all one word, dot se. And that's, um, I'm a partial owner of that company, uh, based here in Umeå, uh, and, and that's where we're putting a lot of the actual physical products. Um, if you're more interested in the urban preparedness or what we call the resilient side of things, then you're going to want to head over to Patreon and look for the resilience hub, and that's where. Selcom, my business partner from the Balkans, and I have been putting a lot of content right from the start of the pandemic until now. Uh, that was actually the first lifeboat we could put in the water when the pandemic kicked off in Europe. And, and there's a huge amount of resources there. And Patreon allows you to put in tiers at any price point you want. And we put it at the absolute lowest price point that Patreon would allow, which is $1 a month, which is nothing. And and that's it. That's there. So if you sign up for that, you can access all of our historical content, which is good by my own admission. And we're still putting things on there on a regular basis. Um, and then you mentioned YouTube. I can highly recommend that. Oh, yeah, you're signed up. Yeah, Jeremy, thank you. Uh, and then if you look for Tread Lightly Survival on YouTube, I'm not active there that much anymore for various reasons, but there's a huge archive of, of really fun outdoors wilderness survival related videos that you'll enjoy. And there's a lot of foundational concepts there that will help you understand more of the points that we've talked about today. So th- those would be the resources I'd share for now. And I'm sure you can link in the comments or however the, the, this is going to look um, as yeah. it goes out. No, no, absolutely. I'll, I'll link uh, all of those uh, things into the description below. So if you guys are uh, following us, whether it's on Spotify or SoundCloud, um, any of those links will be in the description below. So, um, But honestly, Toby, it's an absolute pleasure. Uh, Jeremias, do you have anything to add to that before? I'm sorry, I'm just like <laughs> taking over this here, but uh, you... Have you anything that, to add that's to that? perfectly fine like i mean i've um, both han and i we always 
enjoy talking to Toby over whatever the drink might be or not be and just and like there, there, there's there's so much to unpack from this this person you can have such um good warm conversations that could go any direction that you can ever imagine so just being able to talk to you over over these sort of subjects that is sort of touching a little bit of, of all the hats that you're wearing is it's been a lot of fun I definitely think there's a round two involved uh, there. Just uh, literally in the first five minutes of this conversation, I was like, oh, shit. Okay, we're, <laughs> we're, we're good. We're good. This is, this is going to be an interesting one. But uh, yeah, no, Toby, we're going to have, we're definitely going to have a, re- have to have a round two with you at some point, uh, whether that's a live episode around the campfire or up in Jeremias Homestead or, or maybe go down and visit you at some point. But uh an absolute pleasure. It's got to be at the homestead. Yes. It's got to be at the homestead. Sure. That's where it's at. And I was sure. going to make that point just in closing, guys, to say thank you for having me on. But, um, you know, it's it's all about working left and right. And even for me, if like if, if I need that therapy, if I need to ground myself, if I'm losing my way, I'll head to Hannah and Jeremy's place mm-hmm. like every day of the week yeah. and twice on Sundays <laughs> because what they've got there is is such, such an inspiring, magical, phenomenal setup. I just love hanging out there. So if there's going to be a two, that's where it needs to be. I appreciate it. Yeah. No, honestly, I would say the same. Like I spent uh, three months uh, up in up in their air, uh, neck of the woods last this year. And uh, yeah, I think one of the best things I ever took from that was meeting Jeremias and Hannah and getting to spend some time with them and their dogs. So I 100% agree. And yeah, if anybody else has the opportunity to get up there, uh, I highly recommend it. Guys, if you uh, want to get involved in what we're doing, um, as I said, we have the the course still available. Um, there's a few tickets still available that is coming up at the uh, beginning of next year in March. Myself and Jeremias are going to be running, and Hannah are going to be running an experiential course and educational and experiential, uh, a little bit of both um, up at the homestead next year. Uh, so, Guys, if you're interested in that, get in, get, uh, get in contact with us. Um, but until next week or the week after that, uh, I'd like to say thanks very much for tuning in and uh, I hope you enjoyed the conversation that we've had this evening. Um, so until next week, uh, take care and enjoy yourselves.